What is up, Cape Christian? How are we doing today? Yeah. All right. So good to have all of you with us today. Also, so good to have all of you who join us online every week. Uh, shout out wherever you're joining us from, if you're joining live. I don't know if you're aware of this, but every week, hundreds of people join us online from around the world. And so you're a part of a faith community that doesn't just reside in Cape Coral alone, uh, but all over the world. And it's just so cool how God can connect us through technology, uh, as well as through geography. Because uh, some of you had no idea you would sit in church with people like this either. So it happens both ways. Um, if you're new here, you're visiting, we're so glad to have you. We say this often, but we want this to be a place where you can come as you are. It's a judgment-free zone. Everybody is welcome. Kind of our only rule is that there's no perfect people allowed. So as long as you're not perfect, you're welcome here. And if you are visiting and you're not perfect, you're sitting around a whole bunch of other messed up people. So you're in really good company. Uh, and I am, I, I am one of them as well. Um, we're in the middle of our series called Who Is This Man? Inspired by John Ortberg's book, Who Is This Man? We're looking at the man Jesus of Nazareth, the impact he had on human history. We've kind of scratched the surface of, of just how he impacted art and education and women's rights and children's rights and social justice, uh, all kinds of things. And so we're drilling down on these, these issues and ideas. I'm really excited about today. This is, today is one I'm very, very passionate uh, about. And, and before we even get into it, I just want to remind you, you know I love you, right? Okay, you know I love you. Just remember that. Because I'm going to talk about something today that might step on some of our toes, but don't, don't blame me. Blame Jesus. So I just want to remind you, my job is just to report on what already happened. That's all I'm doing. Um, no, but before we do, I, want to, I, need, I have an important question. I want to find out uh, if I'm alone in this. Does anybody else ever find yourself or feel like you become a different person when you get into traffic? Okay, so I'm not alone. Like, I feel like generally I try to be a good person. I try to make good decisions. I try to speak life. I try to add value. I try to like allow others to go first. But then I get in the car, I turn the car on and all of a sudden I can lose my mind. Like, I just want to get from point A to point B. Uh, it's, it's like, I, and, and everybody else, I, I, it's all of a sudden like the spirit of Satan himself comes upon me and, and you all are part of the problem and I just want to get to where I'm going. Okay, so it's not just me. Um, you know, uh, okay, I, I was, it makes me feel better. And I know it's not just me because every time I drive, it seems like... Like I'm in the majority of everybody's just trying to get where they're going. And it's like, it's like there's no regard for cars or human life. And uh, it's, it's, pretty, uh, it's pretty interesting, especially down here in Florida. I've been here almost two years. I saw more cars on fire in the four, first four months I lived here than I did the first 38 years of living anywhere else. So um, apparently we just like to get places. Um, I saw a great, a, a really great example of this, uh, of uh, probably somebody else, either he became someone else or he just lives this way. And either way, uh, that would be an issue. Um, but recently, me and my family were heading towards Orlando. And I don't remember if we were on Interstate 4 or Interstate 75, but we were on a three-lane interstate where there's three lanes of traffic going the same way. And I'm always paying attention to what's going on around me because my dad taught me to be an aggressively defensive driver. So get where you're going, but watch out for idiots, basically. Um, <laughs> And so I'm always watching my rearview mirror, knowing what's going on. And I couldn't help but notice uh, this guy, who, there's quite a bit of traffic and there's a guy coming up behind us and he is just hauling. You've seen this before, you live in Florida. It's flying, like we're already all going the, the proverbial seven to 12 miles an hour over the speed limit, like all of us Floridians do. And they know, and I just, I had dinner with the sheriff last night. He's like, yeah, you guys are the least of our concerns. I'm like, I know that's why we do it. Um, <laughs> you got other issues down here. Uh, go catch Florida man. Um, <laughs> <laughs> dilly dilly. <laughs> now we're preaching. Anyway, so he's zigging in and out of traffic left, right, as fast as he can get from this lane to that lane, from this lane to that lane. And all of a sudden I'm like, yeah, this is fast. And it, what, turned, what started fascinating, 
all of a sudden got like real dangerous. I'm like, oh, this got real. Like somebody's going to get hurt. And so to the point where he's in and he's out and he's in and he's out. It was I-4. We were heading to Disney, the most magical place on earth, Um, (laughs) right? (laughs) Where everyone loses their minds. Uh, And he's in, I mean, he couldn't, I mean, he could not get where he was going fast enough to the point where everybody who was driving around him took notice of this guy. I mean, it it became a semi-dangerous situation. And so they took notice. And what I couldn't help but notice is there was, everybody kind of responded in one of three ways. Uh, Everybody kind of had one of three responses to the situation that was happening around us. The majority of the people that noticed what was happening moved as far as they could into the right lane. They moved as far away from the situation as they could. They saw this craziness. Somebody's going to get hurt. This is crazy. So let's just, let's move out of harm's way. Let's get over here in the right lane. And so there's this giant long line of cars in the right lane, which is what is probably a wise thing to do, right? So most of them were like, let's just remove ourselves from the situation. Well, one guy had a different response and it was, I'm going to show this guy a lesson. I'm going to stick it to the man. And so he zoomed right in front of him, got in the third lane and went the exact same speed as the guy next to him (laughs) while crazy man's right behind him. And this guy is literally going middle lane, left lane, middle lane, left lane. And he's just like loving going the same speed. And he's like, ha ha, gotcha. You know what I mean? Like he's just sticking it to him. Like I will dictate how fast you will go. And, and if, you've ever, um, if you've ever tried to pass somebody, you know how maddening it is when the person in the left lane is going the same speed as everyone else because I just want to take this moment to make a public service announcement. The left lane is for people going faster than you. It's not for you to hang out and have a leisure drive. That's what the right lane is for. The middle lane is for people who like to play it safe sometimes, but live a little bit on the edge. We love both of those people, but can you leave the less lane for those of us who have somewhere to get, please? Thank you. So anyway, this guy is dictating the course of speed back to our regularly scheduled programming, uh, the same speed. And he's sticking his, and this guy is about to lose his mind to the point where I'm like, okay, you just need to let him go. I think he's going to ram you. So he finally got out of the way. And this guy, now both lanes are open and he can just have the open road. And so I'm like, okay, that was an interesting response. Well, that I didn't know among us was a few other people who had a different response is once he got to the outside lane and just took off probably 90 or hundred miles an hour, there were three or four other cars that went, Hey, I think this guy's onto something. I'm going to follow him. Our two and a half hour trip just became a two hour trip because if the police see him, they're going to pull him over. We'll slow down and be like, yep, got him. You know, so like, let's just go with the flow, baby. And, uh, and you've lived in Florida for very long. You've probably seen this type of thing happen. But what's, in, what's interesting is as funny as this example is, I think that we show and I see these same types of responses on a regular basis to how we live our lives. I see these same three responses to this situation, to how we respond to our culture, to our society, to the world around us, to our environment. I believe that inherent to all of us, when a situation is going on or the world or culture around us, we typically fall into one of three categories of how we respond, even as Jesus followers. And in fact, Jesus saw the same thing in his day, and it really has been the same throughout all of history. And it has everything to do with how we respond to the world and the culture around us. As I do most weeks, I I love to teach a little bit of the history and the culture of the Bible because that's what's made it come alive for me. And I've learned that to better understand the words of the Bible, we need to understand the what? world of the Bible. You should know this by now. I say it almost every week, Uh, the world of the Bible. So I want to help us understand a couple moments of the world of the Bible, because it's going to make the words of the Bible make a whole lot more sense. And I believe that God would dare 
to speak to us about maybe the way we, we see things or feel about things or even our perspective. And so we're going to pray because I believe that God is actually maybe wanting us, some of us to rethink our entire approach to what it means to be a follower of Jesus or to be seeking after what a relationship with Jesus uh, is like. And because I, I can tell you this, I'm almost 40. The last 15 years in my journey with the, my relationship with God, I have done at least twice as much unlearning as I've done learning new things. Do you hear that? There have been mindsets and ideas and philosophies that I thought were biblical, that I thought were scriptural, that God has had to show me with new information and clarity. And as I dig in the scripture and God reveals himself to me, that that's not actually how it is. And, and if you would be bold enough to unlearn some things as well as learn new things, I believe the sky is the limit for how God can transform your life. And so today, I believe that that's what the Holy Spirit wants to do. But we have to be bold enough and courageous enough to, to acknowledge some things that maybe, maybe, just maybe God wants to change our approach to the world, culture, society, and, and environment around us. And the only way that's going to happen is if the Holy Spirit speaks to our hearts. So let's pray that that happens. Heavenly Father, I pray that you would make this word come alive. I thank you for your truth. I thank you that you reveal yourself in all kinds of ways. And so, God, we make our hearts open, just good, fertile ground that you can just sow seeds into. And so, God, would your word come alive in our hearts? Would it lead to transformation? And God, I just pray for courage and boldness. God, I pray for a spirit of humility on our church this weekend to be willing to evaluate and really be honest with ourselves about maybe how we've approached life up to this point. And if there's anything that you want to tweak or align or just completely overhaul, we give you, Holy Spirit, permission to do that because we didn't just come here to be entertained, but we came here to be transformed. And anybody who wants that to happen said amen in whatever version you're comfortable with. Amen. Dilly dilly hooty hoo, whatever, yes, okay. So let's talk about the there and then for a minute. Say there and then. There and then, Jesus was born into a time when Rome ruled the world. We've talked about this. Caesar was Lord. Last week, we talked about the idea that whoever the king was was thought to be divine, made in God's image, everybody else under him. So Rome rules the world. Caesar's the most important person. In fact, when you went into the city at this point in history, most cities had guards at the door, at the gates. And before you could enter to worship or enter to do commerce or to trade, you literally had to say, Caesar is Lord. They wouldn't let you in unless you declared the lordship of Caesar. Caesar is Lord. And then you could come to your commerce or you could come to your worshiping or whatever. Now, Rome didn't completely dictate religion and economy. They would let nations have their own religion. They would have let nations have their own sub economy as long as you knew who was in charge. And the way they did that was a few different ways. Number one, you had to declare Caesar was Lord everywhere you went. Number two, anytime you did commerce with the Greeks or anytime you did trading, you couldn't use your own um, currency or your own money. You had to use Greek currency or Greek coins or money or whatever. And it would have looked very similar uh, to this right here. Not that, that's Jesus, this one, okay. A coin with Caesar's head on it, a Caesar's face, because again, different nations had their own mon money that they could trade with. But if you were going to pay taxes or you were going to do dealings with a Greek or Roman person, it had to have Caesar's face. And then it would have this inscription on the back, uh, which just says Divi Filius, which literally in Greek translates to son of God. So every time you bought something, traded, or wanted something you needed to survive, you had to be reminded that Caesar ran the world, and when you turned it around, that Caesar was Lord, and he was the son of God, and he was under, like he was, you were under his authority. Now, I told you that they would allow you to have your own religion, but they would make sure that you knew who was in charge. So back in those days, the Jews, uh, the Judaism religion, they had several specific holidays, very holy moments that they would have these celebrations and festivals where even the priests and rabbis would wear special garments. They would call them vestments. 
And like uh, uh, the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur, Rosh Hashanah, those types of things that we've heard about, we don't really understand. They were very central to a, a life of a Jew in those days. The Romans would say, you can have those, but the Romans would store the special vestments for the priest in the Roman praetorium. So if you wanted to have your special day, the Romans were like, yeah, that's fine, but you have to come ask us special permission for your special vestments to have your special day just so you're reminded of who's in charge. So do you understand this? The coins, the religious practice, this is the world that Jesus was born into. Now, at this point in history, it's been almost 600 years since Israel has even existed as a nation. First, it was Babylon, then it was Persia, then it was the Assyrians, and now it's Rome. And so for almost 600 years, there's been this, this clinging and this longing for the, the nation of Israel to be restored. But they would sometimes confuse the nation of Israel with the kingdom of God. I'm going to say that again. They would sometimes confuse the nation of America. I mean, Israel with the kingdom of God. But the longing in those days was we want to see the kingdom of God come here on earth. So the longing was we want the kingdom, this kingdom that God promised us, this promised land, this, this thing that God, we used to have it and now we don't have it. And so then the question became this, how does it look? What does it look like? Or how can the kingdom be brought to earth? This would have been common languages. How can the kingdom of God come to be here on earth? In fact, Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, when he was teaching how to pray, part of his prayer in the Lord's prayer is what? Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. This would have been a common idea and a common prayer for any Jewish person in those days saying, we want to see the kingdom of God restored because it wasn't happening. And nobody disputed whether the kingdom was happening. What they disputed is what did the kingdom look like and how do we bring it here on earth? Are you with me? Say yeah. Because yeah. this is about to get really, really good and really, really applicable. So there were three main responses to the question of how do we experience God's kingdom here on earth, here and now, like Jesus prayed. And so everybody, pretty much everybody in that time found themselves falling into one of these three camps of how do we respond and how do we answer the question, what does God's kingdom look like? And those three responses were to either revolt, to withdraw, or to assimilate. There were three different groups that a lot of people fell into. And the idea was, this is how we are going to see the kingdom come here and now. And so there was this group called the Zealots. Say Zealots. The Zealots was a special group of people who lived in those days. In fact, Simon Peter, the lead disciple of Jesus, was known as a Zealot. Now, I think sometimes when we read our Bible, we see the word zealot and you look it up on Urban Dictionary or just Webster's Dictionary or whatever, and you find out that these were like passionate people, like, oh, Pastor Corey would be a zealot. No, it's, it's more than just having a little bit of excitement. This was a group of people who literally were a part of an extreme nationalist party who believed that the only way to see the kingdom of God come was to overthrow the Romans using any means necessary, including violence. These would have been freedom fighters, or depending on which side of politics you were on, they would have actually been known as terrorists. These, they thought, we need to get rid of the government. We need to get rid of the system. We need to get rid of the economy. We need to overthrow Rome. And then once, once we're back on top in power, now we can see the kingdom of God come to here on earth. And so these were the zealots. This is who they were. And so they thought anytime they could, they would revolt. Now, very differently than the zealots, there was this other group called the Essenes. 
The Essenes were peacemakers. In fact, they weren't just peacemakers. This group isn't mentioned in the Bible, although the Dead Sea Scrolls were found in a community probably made up of Essenes. Um, they believed that everything had become so corrupt, so contaminated, not just Rome, but all of the rest of Israel, including the temple system and the religious system, that the only response accurate to bring the kingdom of God would be to withdraw completely from all of the corruptness and all the contamination and all the toxicity. So they thought, the idea was, if we can just withdraw, we'll get away from all the bad people. We'll just live these super holy, pure lives. They were very austere. They were very um, pure. They followed every letter to the law, to the extremist uh, the movement. They just didn't want to be associated with anything dirty or filthy or, or bad or whatever. So they completely withdraw. In fact, if you were a scene, they, they, they moved out of the city. They slept in caves. They were so self-denying and so simple and plain that they even refused to relieve themselves on the Sabbath. If you don't know what relieve yourself is in King James, it means if you had to go number one or number two, you had to hold it till Monday. I would not have been a very good a scene. That's how strict they follow the law. They would actually take a ritual bath before every single meal they, were, they referred to themselves as the sons of light and referred to everyone else as the sons of darkness. And here was the belief as of an Essene. They believed that their purity and their holiness would cause God to destroy all of their enemies while they withdrew and remained pure, and then God would just give them the kingdom. It was like, if we're just over here living these really good, pure lives, they'll all kill each other and the, God will destroy them and wipe them out, and then we just get whatever's left and we get the kingdom. It was a very different, almost opposite approach to the zealots. Now, also in those days was a third group called the Sadducees. Say the Sadducees. The Sadducees were a religious group of leaders, very different than the Pharisees, but they were very practical. They were pragmatists, very pragmatical. These, these group was guided more by practical consideration, practical living than any philosophy or ideal. They didn't believe in angels. They didn't believe in the resurrection. The, the Sadducees were really mostly interested in here and now and what gives me the best leverage in the culture to which I am born into. The Sadducees literally looked at the Romans and figured, if you can't beat them, join them. So these were the people who became friends with tax collectors. They would become friends with the Roman rulers. They would position themselves as close as possible to all of the other people in power. So when a position of importance came up in the nation of Israel for Rome to appoint, who do you think they appointed? The Sadducees, because the Sadducees were in their pocket. They were in the Sadducees' pocket. They literally believed the only way we can get the kingdom here on earth is if we get as close to the people on power. We got to be close to the king. We want to be the senators. We want to have the most Instagram followers. We want to have the most Facebook friends. That's how they thought back then. It really was. Uh, that we just got to be of, of, of seats of importance. And so literally, these were the ones who kind of authored the idea of when in Rome, do as the Romans do. So there was these three ideas of this is how the kingdom is going to come. And all of them had their own approach and they were, they were committed to their way. The unique thing about this is Jesus differed with all three. Jesus had a very different approach. He, he didn't do any of these, uh, but these were the three main op uh, uh, options. In fact, not only did he differ, Jesus actually ticked off and got in trouble with all three groups. Jesus would not have fit into any three groups who Jesus, by the way, was the son of God, did bring the kingdom. And while he's bringing this kingdom, all these other people who are trying to bring the kingdom are like, no, he's not bringing the kingdom. And so I think as, as followers of Jesus in 2019 in America, we have to ask ourselves, is my approach to the world and culture and environment around me more like Jesus or is it more like 
the Sadducees or the Essenes or the Zealots, because if we would be so bold and honest, most of us have a bent towards one of these three and we're less inclined outside of the spirit of God and some intentionality to take Jesus's approach. I mentioned that Jesus got in trouble with all three groups. And this is really important to understand because some of you are looking at me like, this will be my last weekend at Cape Christian. We're going somewhere else. Um, <laughs> let's talk about the zealots for just a second. In Luke chapter seven, there was a centurion guard. Do you know what a centurion is? It's a Roman soldier, the enemy, the oppressor, the bad guy. A centurion has a servant who is really sick that knows Jesus is a healer, believes Jesus did come for everybody. And so this centurion sends for Jesus and says, my servant is sick. Ask Jesus to come to my house and heal my servant. So Jesus drops what he's doing, goes to heal a Roman soldier servant in the face of all of Israel. And in fact, doesn't even get to the house. And the centurion comes and meets him and he says, hey, you don't even need to come into my house. I'm a man with authority and under authority. I know that if you just say the words, my servant will be healed. And Jesus says, okay, your servant will be healed. And then he goes even further, not only to heal the bad guy's servant, but then he says this, I have not found greater faith in all of Israel. How do you think that set with the zealots who thought that the only way the kingdom could come was to overthrow Rome. And now he's not only healing the bad guy's servants, but he's saying, oh, and by the way, they have way more faith than all you guys. I don't know what your deal is. Likewise, there's another point in the Bible uh, in Matthew five, because and, and Jesus is responding to a law in those days, because in those days, another way that Rome let you know that they were in charge is no matter where you were, no matter what you were doing, how important your business was, if a Roman centurion guard or a soldier came walking up, they had the, the backing of the law that they could require you to stop doing what you're doing. And you had to carry their gear or their pack or their armor up to, but not to exceed one mile. So it didn't matter what you were doing. A Roman soldier had the law behind them to say, I want you to carry my stuff. And you could say, I'm going somewhere important. Or I have really busy. It didn't matter. You literally had to carry their stuff for up to a mile, kind of like jury duty. It's like, we don't really care what you had going on that day. You need to report for jury. I mean, that's what it was. Again, this was Romans oppression. It was Jesus of Nazareth who suggested Hey, next time you're inconvenienced by the bad guys and they make you carry all their pack and their gear a mile, don't carry it a mile. Go to. Again, if you think the kingdom is coming through revolt, how do you think this sits with you? You're like, Jesus, you don't understand. We want to bring the kingdom. We're not trying to serve Rome. Like, but here's the reality. The zealots were wrong. The kingdom wasn't going to come by force. The kingdom wasn't going to come by violence. And the kingdom wasn't going to come by political overthrow. One-liner, that's not to state that politics don't matter. Politics super matter. We have politicians in our church. I thank God that we have Christian men and women in politics, but it, was, that, but it wasn't the end goal for Jesus. That's my point. Likewise, Jesus spent most of his life touching lepers, right? Speaking with prostitutes, hanging out with Gentiles, the other side, the other people. He would regularly have dinner with tax collectors, sinners, be invited over to the bad people's side. This would have drawn, uh, driven the Essenes crazy. Jesus literally ignored all the purity laws that would make him holy and, and preserve his holiness so that he could show that his kingdom actually came for everybody and he loved everybody and there was grace for everybody. The Essenes would have seen Jesus as the anti-Essene. Like you do everything against our purity laws. So his response was also not to withdraw. But here's the reality. The Essenes were wrong. The kingdom is not going to come by us withdrawing uh, into our own religious subculture. Now, at the same time, 
The Sadducees were trying to trap him and he didn't, he ticked them off as well. The Sadducees, they were always trying to get Jesus and the religious people were trying to get Jesus kind of trapped. And so um, he could, because Jesus refused to be co-opted by Rome, but went about it differently than everybody else. And so in Matthew chapter 22, one day this, they, they came to him and they said, teacher, uh, we know that you are a man of integrity, that you teach the way of God in accordance with truth, and you aren't swayed by others because you pay no attention to who they are, which drove them crazy, by the way. Tell us then, what is your opinion? Is it right to pay the imperial tax to Caesar or not? This was a total trap question. See, it's important to know that in this time in history, just a few years before this question, when Jesus was a boy, there was another man named Judas of Galilee who led a revolt about this very same issue about the people of, of, Jew, of the Jewish people in the nation of Israel paying temple tax to Caesar. They actually adopted an idea back in those days that if any Jewish person, especially a Jewish leader, were to be carrying a Roman coin with Caesar's name on it, it would actually be a form of idolatry or impurity. And so it was kind of became forbidden to even have a coin with Caesar's face on it. So they're trapping Jesus. So this guy named Judas of Galilee leads a revolt that we don't have to pay Caesar with Caesar's. We don't have to pay the temple tax. Well, how do you think Rome responded to that? He had about 2,000 followers and they crucified all 2,000 of them. And they left the crosses up as their little subtle warning to make sure that you pay your taxes and don't mess with Caesar. So if Jesus answers, yes, you should pay the temple tax, then people would hate him for giving into Rome. But if he answers no, well, I'm sure Rome could just find one more cross, right? So what does Jesus do? He does what only Jesus could do. He goes on and says, but Jesus, verse 18, knowing their evil intent said, you hypocrites, why are you trying to trap me? He says, show me the coin used for paying the tax. So they brought him a denarius and he asked them, whose image is this and whose inscription? Caesar's, they replied. This would have been a coin very similar to the one I showed you, which by the way, one of them who shouldn't have happened to have a coin on him. Ironic. He says, then give back to Caesar what is Caesar's, but give to God what is God's. See, the details matter. Whose picture was on the coin? Jesus didn't have a coin. Jesus didn't agree with Caesar's right to be worshiped because Jesus wasn't a Sadducee. In fact, the second half of this statement gives to Caesar what is Caesar's, but give to God what is God's would change the history of the world because there was an implication and no one would have ever said this and no one would have ever thought this. There was an implication that not everything belongs to Caesar. Caesar isn't Lord. Caesar doesn't rule the world. We don't pay homage to Caesar. Not everything belongs to the culture in the world and the Caesar around you. In fact, the right to dictate, Jesus was saying, the right to dictate worship does not belong to Caesar. The claim to ultimate allegiance does not belong to Caesar. The valuation of human worth and who's in and who's out and who matters and who doesn't does not belong to Caesar. In fact, the religious conscience of a single powerless Israelite doesn't belong to Caesar. The title Lord doesn't belong to Caesar. When Jesus says, give some things to Caesar that he wants, but let's hold the other things and let's give to God what's God's, he started a revolution that has not stopped from this day on. In fact, Jesus had a very, very different approach. It was, yeah, give Caesar what's his, but there's some other things that God has. In fact, he was redefining the kingdom of God. 
We see this in John chapter 18, when Jesus is standing before the governor Pilate to literally give an account for his life, to try to not have to die and go to the cross. And Pilate's basically say, what do you have to say for yourself? What's going to be your reasoning? What's your testimony? He quotes in verse 36. He says, here's what you need to understand. And they didn't get it at the time. And I don't think we get it much more today. But the more we dig into this one idea or concept, the more it transforms every area of our life. Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world. My economy is different. My politics are different. My power struggle is different. My valuation of who's important is different. Of human worth is different. My grace is different. My love is different. My inclusivity is different. He said, my kingdom is not of this world. In fact, he says, if it were, my servants would just revolt. They would fight to prevent my arrest. He says, if my kingdom were as low as the kingdom of the world, we would have just joined one of the other three people who keep missing it. But it's bigger than that. It transcends it. My kingdom is from a different place. This was the statement that got him killed. Because uh, as Ron Heffitz of Harvard says, leadership is the art of disappointing people at a rate they can stand. <laughs> Which is so true. I want to read you three sentences from John's book in regard to this. He said, in the last week of his life, Jesus exceeded the disappointment rate. He explained his refusal to wield the power of the crowds and that the crowds wanted by saying, my kingdom is not of this world. His vision of a sphere above political power would eventually change human kingdoms. Our understanding of limited government is part of his legacy. But first it got him killed. Because see, they wanted a kingdom of this earth. They wanted power, they wanted politics, they wanted economy. And I'm not saying either is good or bad, but Jesus brought a kingdom that was different than any of that. And it didn't matter where you were at on the power struggle or the tier system. His kingdom was for everybody. Jesus had a very different approach. He didn't come to revolt. He didn't come to withdraw. He didn't come to assimilate. Jesus came to infiltrate. He came to infiltrate the weakest and the lowest and the most powerful and the highest, the haves and the have-nots, the left outs, the left overs, and the left wing and the right wing. Jesus came for everyone. He set a new standard of what it meant for the kingdom. And he called anyone who would follow him to do the same thing. Jesus came to change the world for everyone for all time. His message and his kingdom would transform the way we go about relationships. It would enhance and change the way we view marriage, how we spend our time, how we spend our money, how we go about relationships, how I act and treat people and, and, and act online and in my office. He came to change the world and change every area of our lives. And it was for everyone. Jesus came to infiltrate the revolters, infiltrate the withdrawers, infiltrate the assimilators, infiltrate all of those who thought it wasn't good enough for them. And ultimately, you know what Jesus' plan was? He had the best, most brilliant strategy ever. This was ultimately, if you could boil it down to the simplest form, this is what Jesus did. He said, my plan is to come live a perfect life, pay the ransom and the penalty for every person's mistakes of all humans, all time, and then offer freely salvation for you on earth and in eternity. And here's the deal. I'm just gonna love and include everybody and I'm gonna invite everybody on my team. And if we can get the whole world on my team, we don't have anything to revolt from, assimilate towards or withdraw against. It was, he came in the name of love and grace and inclusion and forgiveness. And he said, let's just, I'm just gonna love everybody and I'm gonna include everybody and I'm gonna invite my followers to do the best me impression they possibly can with how they act, how they talk, how they live, how they type, even how they drive. Come on, Jesus, help me. He infiltrated this world with love, with grace, with kindness, with inclusivity, 
with self-sacrifice and self-denial and lots and lots and lots of forgiveness. And he said, my kingdom is not of this world because it's for everyone. And so his kingdom following Jesus works. If you're the boss or you're the grunt employee, if you're the husband or the wife, if you're in political power or if you're not, no matter what nation, what kingdom, the kingdom can come because Jesus came to bring a kingdom that transcends ours and can infiltrate ours. And it's free for everyone who would just re receive the free gift of saying, Jesus, I'm gonna follow you. No longer is Caesar Lord, but you are Lord. He said things like, you are to be in the world, but don't be of the world. Don't assimilate, don't revolt, don't withdraw. In fact, here was his ultimate strategy for infiltration. Ready? Here's where it is. In his very first sermon ever, at the beginning of his sermon, the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter five, he's speaking to all the people that, were that claim to be God's people and followers of God. And he says, here's what this should look like. He says, you, 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 all of you, you're the salt of the earth. And I don't know if you're culinary or not, or you've ever cooked with salt, but salt is supposed to make things taste better. You're the salt of the earth. When it needs some flavor, when it's bland, when it's, doesn't, when it's not right, let's add some salt to it. Let's freshen this thing up. Let's make it taste better. Let's enhance the environment. This is the message of infiltration. Go be salt to bland, boring culture. And then he goes on to say, if the salt loses its saltiness, go back, I'm not done yet. If the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be salty again? It is no longer good for anything except for throwing it out and being trampled underfoot. Go be salt, go infiltrate, don't revolt, don't withdraw, don't assimilate, make it better, bring something else. And he goes, and for those of you who don't abla cooking, let me say it a different way. You are the light of the world. A city on a hill can't be hidden. Neither do you put a lamp on a stand and put a bowl to cover it. No, let your light so shine before the world around you that they will see how you act. They will see how you love. They will see how you forgive. They will see how you include. They will see your grace. They will see your forgiveness. They will see that you're a second chance people. They will see your light. And as they see your light, they will give glory to God in heaven. That's what the plan is. He didn't say, he didn't say, he didn't say, let them see your light so you can be on top of the power chain. Let them see your light so they can think Pastor Corey's pretty awesome and Cape Christian is the place to be. No, let them see the light. Let them taste the salt so that they can go, there must be a God in heaven because we know those people and they're not very good on their own. There's gotta be something to this. Infiltrate salt, light. I'll be honest, the first quarter century of my life, I was probably more like in a scene. I thought that withdrawing was the way to go. I was, not, I was a rule follower. I was gonna do the right things. I was gonna let all the bad people do bad things together. Y'all could destroy each other in the world around you and I'll just pick up the leftovers. Maybe just, maybe I'll get to heaven. I thank God I had pastors and mentors in my life that taught me that it wasn't about withdrawing from a dying, hurting world, but it was storming the gates of hell, reaching into hell and pulling a few people out and taking them to heaven with us. Jesus looked at Peter, by the way, and he said, I'm gonna start my church on you and the gates of hell won't prevail against it. The inference there is that hell was going to be so afraid of this kingdom that they would build walls and gates trying to keep the Christians and the kingdom of God from going in and taking whatever was in there that belonged to God. But I think in our American church and our culture, most often we believe it's heaven that has the walls and gates. And we're like, we're just trying to keep hell out. No, it's the other way around. We're supposed to invade hell and be like, let's pull every soul out of hell and let's bring them with us. It's why we have the one. It's why we exist, to introduce people to Jesus. Because we all have people. We all have people in our lives that their financial life is hell, their marriage is hell, they're experiencing hell in their life, and God is like, I have placed you in their life because they need some salt and they need some light. Now go, do it. 
This is the gospel. And it gives everyday purpose and it gives every interaction purpose. And it means that all people matter. And now we don't have this boring nine to five. Well, I gotta go do this thing, I travel. No, every plane ride matters, every interaction matters. Salt and light, salt and light, salt and light, salt and light. Let's go infiltrate and transcend. And and then, then we can understand what Jesus meant when he said, my kingdom is not of this world. Where do you fit into this? What's your natural response? Maybe up until this moment, you thought that revolting was the best way. I'm just going to throw out one crazy idea. I've said politics and economy matters. Maybe the church should be known more for what we're for than what we're against. And maybe, just maybe, whoever gets elected the next president, we could just pray for him either way. Maybe we could just, maybe we could just do what the Bible says and pray for your leaders. And yes, it matters. It really matters. But maybe we could not put all of our hope on our economic system or our politics, but we could understand his kingdom is not of this world. And I'm going to pray and I'm going to be salt and light. And I'm going to encourage other people to be salt and light because we don't. If you're a follower of Jesus, it can't be Israel first, God second. That's where they missed it. Maybe it's kingdom first because his kingdom is not of this world. This will be something we will have to wrestle with for our entire entire journey with Jesus. I'll be really interested to see how much our church shrinks next week after this message. But I told you at the beginning, my job is just to report on the message of Jesus. Jesus was the most offensive teacher in his day, but he did it with love and grace and he invited everybody to ascend to something greater. And that's what I want us to do. Will you stand with me as we pray, if you're physically able? I would love for you to take a moment and just evaluate as you close your eyes, is is what's your natural bent? What's your natural inclination? And is there something that God is inspiring you to maybe unlearn or relearn? If you don't have a, uh, it's going to be really hard to, to follow Jesus and bring the kingdom if you don't have a relationship with him or you don't follow him. And, and it's a free gift. And the Bible says that if you just believe in your heart, this is for you. You make him Lord of your life. You confess him as Lord, that you're saved and you can be a follower of Jesus. And maybe today there's some people here watching or listening and you need to make that decision that I'm going to start following Jesus. If this is how he really is, I can get behind that. You just have to right where you're at. Just make that declaration in your heart or your mind. The rest of us, I'm just going to pray that we would go be salt and light this week. God, I thank you for your word. I thank you that you brought, that you sent Jesus to bring a kingdom, not of this world. And God, help us to get it right when we get so swallowed up in the culture around us. God, I pray that we would not uh, think that we have to revolt or withdraw or assimilate to make a difference, that we don't have to look like the world. We don't have to fight the world. We don't have to withdraw from the world. But God, we want to infiltrate the world with your love, with your grace, with your inclusion, with your message, with the gospel. God, I love that your gospel is not complicated. It's just really hard to do. And so this week, would you anoint us? Would you empower us? Would you help us to be salt and light everywhere we go with the words that we use, with the actions that we have, how we treat people, even in this godforsaken traffic down here in Southwest Florida? If we can be salt and light in traffic, we could be salt and light anywhere. But God, we want you to change our hearts. Don't allow us just to continue living the way we live, thinking that our way is the best. But God, we want you to be the Lord of our life. Help us, Jesus. And I thank you for your free gift of salvation that at any moment we can come to you And you receive us just as we are and help us to grow into the person you made us to be. In Jesus' name, amen.